Have you ever wanted to sit down and have a chat with a spy? Well, today I actually got that opportunity. I was so excited. And I thought this person was just gonna be someone that sat in the office and did a desk job. No, I found out during the interview that she was actually in the field. She was a real life spy. All these 007 questions came up. I was so excited to have the opportunity to have a chat with her and to find out a little bit more about that world, which I have got no idea about. And I have to say, we did get, well, she got permission to speak about this. I didn't, I've got no contacts in this world. But she did go to her ex-employer and make sure this was all okay. I did check that before recording, so I don't want any knocks at the door. This was an amazing episode to record. I was so excited. So let's get into it. Speaking for the first time about her prior career as an ASIO spy, Nicole Cooper. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. hear me I can yeah thank you for doing this my pleasure I have got so many questions so I think that the best thing to do is because you've had such an eventful and interesting life is to sort of start chronologically when you sort of left high school sure and I'll leave it with you (laughs) (laughs) you can (laughs) take it away because I think it's going to be a very interesting story way back to the beginning (laughs) (laughs) Alrighty. Um, look, so uh, coming out of high school, uh, like I was a super, um, I don't know, how would I describe me? Kind of nerdy kid. So um, I followed all the rules. I was um, I was a good student. I wasn't a great student. Uh, but yeah, I, I did well. Wanted to go straight to uni. Didn't really contemplate doing anything else. Um, and so I just, I guess I just chose like my direction out of uni just based on my out of school, sorry, into uni just based on my interests. So went, okay, well, I'm good at people and I'm kind of interested in writing and communications. And um, so I'm just going to do an arts degree, double degree in journalism and Asian studies. I'd done Indonesian at high school. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, I don't know if you've ever spoken Indonesian, but it's actually quite an easy language. <laughs> it's British I haven't, but I have it's heard pretty, it's pretty yeah, easy. Yeah, so in the, in the scheme of, of languages, I guess. Um, you went the easy route. It was, an, it was an easy route, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of, I don't know, at, at that stage of my life, that was kind of where I was at, right? I did well, and I, but, but did I really pick anything that was particularly challenging? I don't know, maybe not. So um, You went the path of least resistance. Yeah, that's, that's okay. Right. I that's understand right. that. Yeah. And, I, and I did well in it. So I I remember putting my, I have this really distinct memory of putting in my um, my preferences for uni, right? I was sitting on the couch. I was home sick uh, that day, had a sinus infection on the couch. My dad said to me, right, let's get these uni preferences in. And I was like, all right. Like I had aspirations for law or something, you know, kind of cool and sexy like that, but I was like, I'm never going to get the marks for that. So let's be realistic. Uh, and uh, yeah, I landed on journalism and Asian studies and my dad went, you know what, that's the kind of degree, really well-rounded kind of degree that could get you into something really cool, some kind of government job, you know, like maybe Asia or something like that. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. 
<laughs> and it just, it was as if he planted a seed then when I was 17 years old that maybe that's what I should shoot for. Uh, a spy. A spy. I want to be a spy. I want to be a spy. <laughs> and I didn't really at that point think much more of it. But then when I did my four-year degree, kind of came to the end of it, you know, I trained to be a journalist, a print journalist. So I did time. At, I was living in Perth at the time, so I'm a Perth girl. Um, so I did time at like the Sunday Times newspaper, you know, like where you start as a journo is like right at the bottom, which is the obituaries. So I had to contact people literally who had, you know, I picked up their stories from the death's sort of announcements and call them up and say, hey, um, you know, but your, your loved one kind of sounded like they had an interesting life. Would you be happy for the paper to sort of honour them? And sometimes that was very well received and sometimes that was, you know, the most horrific conversation that, that ever transpired for, for them and for me. Um, but, yeah, I kind of got to the end of journalism and, and ended my four years of study and went, I don't know if this is if this is really me, <laughs> these, you know, cold calls to kind of create news out of nothing is kind of the right fit for me. And I was very naive at the time, but um, yeah. So I just like, I kind of went, okay, what am I going to do for work? And it just, I just, a lot of people were applying for graduate jobs. So it was kind of like, you know, you finish uni and kind of go, well, do I have a specific career direction or do I have a generalist kind of career set? And, and if you've got a generalist career or skill set, then you apply for a sort of a generalist career. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll apply for some grad positions. So I applied for defence as well, mm-hmm. the Department of Defence, just as a, a sort of a, you know, in their generalist grad intake. Um, but, yeah, I went for ASIO as well. And, and what's really funny about applying for ASIO is, of course, that if you want to work as a spy, you're probably the wrong fit for the organisation right? Like they don't actually want people who want to be spies. If you've got this sort of, oh, you know. So all your dreams of being a 007 and, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah that's laser not, watches. It, and that's not everything. really the kind of person they want, right? They want someone who. So disappointing. Yeah, that's right. Oh, you want to be James Bond, probably not the right fit. So. <laughs> um, but anyway, I don't know. I managed to keep that a secret, like my, my, my uh, lifelong dream of working for them. But yeah, yeah, I applied and I got in. So you tricked ASIO. I tricked them. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah you tricked they them. weren't on to me at all. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the recruitment? How do you how do you apply? Like what's the recruitment path for ASIO? So to start with, it's just like any other grad program with federal government. So it's just like, like pages and pages of selection criteria that you write mm-hmm. in an online application. Um, and so I did that, applied, and then it just takes ages. And, and I'd been sort of on the website when you apply, it was a bit like this could take a while. I was like, okay, this could take a while. Um, but it took a long time. The recruitment process took close close to a year, I think, in total. Is that that they drip feed you through certain selection processes and they've got to vet you and everything? Or is it just that they didn't touch your file until 12 months? No, that's that's the process. So that's how long that's that's okay. yeah, that's how long it actually takes. So you can imagine that, you know, ASIO is is the nation's security agency so mm-hmm. you know they deal with the most secret of of secret things and to have people working in that environment comes with significant risks and so mm-hmm. to let people in you've got to do some serious serious vetting so there's yeah. the piece of work that looks at okay well does this person actually have the skill set the knowledge the sort of the core criteria t- to work effectively in this role and then almost in parallel well what's their security 
picture like as an individual as a you know what's their background what are the inherent risks with, with this individual and and are they an appropriate fit from just from a security perspective for the organization and to have access to the nation's nation's most highly guarded secrets and i think that's a fair a fair length of time for that process to happen i don't think you can you don't want to rush that through <laughs> no so you pass the recruitment process, you go to congratulations, your successful letter, I'm assuming. Yep. Does it self-destruct when you open it? <laughs> it was a phone call, actually, <laughs> from an unknown caller. Oh, God, so disappointing <laughs> at all fronts. And so what What then happens? Do you then go through like a, an intake training process or yeah. is it just that you rock up like a normal office environment and be like, hey, it's my first day? Yeah, so I mean, both, right? There's kind of elements of both. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it is just a, it, it's a building and, it, and it's it's a team and it's an office and it's a place of work. You know, there's a, a very large and fancy ASIO headquarters in Canberra. Um, mm-hmm. So that's, that's where you work. Um, and yeah, there's a, it's a training program to kick off with. So there's lots of different ways that you can work for, um, for ASIO. I worked as an intelligence officer. So as you come in as an intelligence officer, you're sort of, basically then prepared or or upskilled to work uh, as an analyst on a desk, sort of looking at all of the intelligence that comes in and assessing it and understanding it and making the links and and drawing, um, you know, conclusions and insights out of of that intelligence. Um, And and the other sort of primary role is an officer like in a a field-based role, I guess. So out. Did you ever want to be in the field? I was in the field. Oh, did you do dead drops? Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like so all of excited. Your, um, <laughs> all of your your uh, spy uh, novel thrill yeah. is coming. Yeah, to my life. husband wanted me to ask if he had a license to kill in everything. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! All the Double so, Seven movies. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's interesting, right? So, so ASIO, I guess, is as a as a service was established in 1949, right? So the history of the organisation is in Soviet interference, is in sort of the start of the Cold War, and we were aware that, you know, there were spies in the country and, and the, the intelligence organisation was set up to, to counter that. So the the roots of the organisation and, and the history and the heritage of the organisation are in espionage. Um, and, and the service itself was modelled after MI5, and that was kind of the intention of it. So... So yeah, so MI6 being a little bit more sexy than MI5, but, but yeah, like I guess that it, it was a, when you've got that as your heritage and you've got that as as where an organisation has come from, well, then that's going to continue and that's going to become a really important um, way that the organisation continues. So I guess, you know, for a little bit of, of context in terms of the organisation's powers, so it's, it's an agency that's um, responsible for protecting Australians and, and Australia from espionage, yes, and, and sabotage, acts of foreign interference, but then also politically motivated violence, which is what we would traditionally understand as terrorism, attacks on our defence systems, sorry, um, those sorts of things. So, you know, you have to be upskilled as a trainee to work in all of those areas. So you have to be upskilled to, you know, if you're working in an espionage role, um, well, then, yeah, you do need to know how to do lightning contacts and dead letter drops, of course, because that's how spies work, you know? So, so yeah, it's, the training is, is so exciting. very exciting. It's, it's hugely exciting, but it's also very practical, you know? Like, it's, it's, um, it, was, it was an amazing um, 
an amazing year. It was an amazing job. Um, how long were you in the field for? How long did you work for ASIO in total and then how long were you in the field for? So I was there for just under five years. Okay. So you do about a year of training and then I worked um, on the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I did, I went back to Canberra and worked um, almost in a, you would liken it to sort of um, a chief of staff type role to the, mm-hmm. um, to the deputy heads of the organisation which was a very different role to what I had done. Um, but mm. that's, I guess, the richness of that organisation is that once you're in, there's really no limitations and boundaries in the kind of role that you can complete, you know. They just they recruit, um, you know, clever people who can be um, sort of dispatched to, to all manner of different types of, of roles. And, um, yeah, it was an amazing place to work. So when you were, let me, let me just take it back a step. (laughs) My understanding, I probably, because there's so many more movies about the CIA and MI5 and MI6 and stuff, Mm -hmm. like I kind of understand one's domestic and one's offshore. I don't have that understanding for the Australian side of things. Is ASIO both domestic and international? Well, I, lots of people sort of say, look, ASIS is more international, ASIO is more domestic. And that's, to a degree, that's true. But I think a better way to think about it is that ASIO is really tasked with, with protecting Australia and its citizens um, sort of here and, here and now. It's very kind of Australia in kind of focus. So, you know, some of those threats come from overseas, but the majority of, of our work is kind of here their work okay. I should say because I'm not and what was anymore. the other what was the other letters that you just used ASIS ASIS yeah so ASIS are you don't hear about them anywhere near as no. much you'll need to do some google I've never heard of them before <laughs> so they are a little bit more offshore focused and they you know they're even more exciting secret. even more secret <laughs> um so yeah so the intelligence organization so ASIO is is um People sort of do tend to kind of summarise that, yes, they're domestically focused. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's about, I guess, the focus is on the protection of Australia and its citizens from, from the, all of those areas that I, that I listed before. And what was, I, I suppose for me being an everyday citizen and not having any insight at all into this sort of life, I mean, the most dangerous thing I've ever done is walk across the street, but... <laughs> Do you did you find that when you went in there that you I hang on let me, how do I phrase this question I think that having ignorance and naivety about what's going on in the world is a nice thing because I don't really think I think that I'd be totally stressed out if I knew every threat that was coming mm. <laughs> coming in was it did you kind of sit there and see this stuff come across your desk and go holy moly like I never knew this like this is just freaking me out how much is happening in the world that I had no idea about yeah sometimes um but I think that that comes with with the nature of of this kind of of job so I think that you know and and I I guess I I need to say that obviously like I can't talk in detail about what happens there and what work I did because it's a secret but even when you're inside that organization things are a secret right so I had peers after training who went off to work in 
in areas of, of espionage and, and looking at, you know, acts of foreign interference into Australia. And I had no idea about their work day. They couldn't talk to me about even what particular particular country those threats could be stemming from. You know, it, that there's a real um, principle of need to know in the organisation and that mm-hmm. goes down all the way into your, you know, immediate work teams. So the secret nature of it is incredibly important um, because ultimately what you're doing as an ASIO officer is actually investigating other Australians. You know, you're looking at, at threats um, with, amongst us, you know, to all of us. So um, that, you know, that's, that's intense and, and there's a lot of kind of responsibility that comes with that. But I guess that you, you, all of these things unfold slowly. I guess mm. you know you kind of peel back the layers of, of of the detail and and the insight that that you get and the sort of the importance of the work that you're doing, um, and when you when you start off, it really just is like oh wow you know like oh I'm going to be looking at terrorism you know that's such a an abstract kind of theoretical term when you're coming in you know um, but when you start to work specifically on on what that looks like day to day then then yeah, you do you do get a whole lot of insight and, and you do get a big wake up call as to what's really going on. Um, but then of course, like that's a degree of, of insight and knowledge that I really missed once I left, you know. Just I was actually going to ask you that, like when you hear about things now, do you think, oh goodness, I wish I was still there to sort of help or? All the time, yeah. Yeah. All the time. and And you see, you know, media reporting or things that have happened or anything hmm, was it really like that is that what that really is you know there's always a question um because when you've been on the other side of that that kind of piques your interest to kind of you know are things really the way they are and that's just a I think that's a side of me that will never go away because once that's trained into you to the degree that it was trained into us um in terms of protecting ourselves and protecting our work and protecting the secret that is the work that we did. Um, you can't really shake that, you know. Um, you can never really lose that instinct. Without going into specifics, I know that you can't. So let's talk in generalities. Yeah. When you were out in the field, I would and imagine particularly when you first started going into the field as a, a newbie mm. in that area, mm. what was your main because that would be quite scary, I would imagine, about sort of am I going to do this right or are they going to know who I am really? Like is that sort of something that would be yeah, yeah ter- that's terrifying? Terrifying, yeah. And for me, I mean, I was 22 when I joined the organisation. So I, I was, you know, I think back to who I was back then with, with the wisdom I have now in my my old age <laughs> I can't believe that this you know 22 year old was getting around doing what she was doing but but the but the organization puts an enormous amount of work into you as an individual and 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 your competence to do the work that you have to do your security your protection your ability to to protect your work but to protect yourself you know um there's an enormous amount of work that goes into that and and so you know, when you spend a year in training, like that's a year in training, like actually, you know, think about the, the days and the hours that are actually, you know, available to you in a year in terms of, of role play and, um, and challenging yourself to kind of, to get a grip of what, what you need to do and, and how you need to sort of empower yourself and involve yourself to go out and do what you need to do. Um, and then, yeah, well, I mean, it was, 
it was scary. It was it was full on, but it was it was a job that that made a difference, and I could I could tell that straight away. It was very empowering to be working on something that I could see a tangible impact every day in what I did, and that that was yeah, like I it was very hard to turn away from that. Super rewarding from the sounds of it. Super, Super rewarding. rewarding. And and you know what? To do something like that at that age, at the start of my career, was so informative then for every other career decision that I've made. Did you ever have any close calls in terms of people? What's the term? Being made, Nicole. Let's use a movie term. <laughs> um, no, well, I guess... I mean, I can't get like, I can't get into much into specifics. Okay. But I guess that I, you know, I was always very, very comfortable in operational work that I did because I was Uh very well trained and very well prepared to do it. Um, Okay. And and it just becomes like second nature, you know, like you just, it's just like a job like anything else, you know, in the same way that you just, you rock up to your desk and you sit down and you do your work in a a normal, you know, nine to five office job or, or the kind of, you know, careers that, I went to beyond ASIO is like you you go to work there and you become the person that you have to become to to achieve the things you have to achieve and they are second nature um and so there's always a degree of risk and sometimes things felt riskier than other things but but they have to you know um to achieve the things you want to achieve so without obviously going into detail and operational and stuff like that did you was it sort of quick in and out situations or were you sort of any long-term undercover can you answer that? <laughs> Not really. Okay. <laughs> That's right. But I was where I was going with the question is yeah. if you you mentioned that you know they train you and you sort of have to learn to become who you need to become. Yeah. And so I was wondering in terms of if you were going into long term situations that you'd kind of almost lose a bit of who's the real Nicole rather than this character yeah. or persona that so, you are So the way that I will answer that is that someone who works for an organisation like this, someone who takes on a role in national security and what that means in terms of the kind of work that you have to do is someone who's prepared to give up all, of, all other facets of their life. Like that's that's okay. what that role requires. So when you look at James Bond and you look at his like inability to to build any kind of meaningful relationship with anyone, <laughs> that's really because he's unable to do that, right? Because you have to put your job first. Because, you know, like when you're working operationally in the field, of course you can't you can't become friends. You can't meet people. I was living and working in cities where I knew absolutely no one. Um, and that's that's the requirement to maintain the security environment that, that you work in. And, and that's the reality of, of a role like this. Um, it's not the kind of role that you do forever, um, but that's the beauty of the organisation is that you can step in and do other roles and, and desk jobs and, and other things that aren't so, um, you know, intense in terms of what it demands from you personally as a human, I would guess, I would say. Do you Did you find it lonely? Incredibly lonely, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, incredible. So how did you how did you given the fact that you can't build any meaningful relationships, you can't have friends, you probably very have very limited if any contact and I'm assuming with family. Yeah. What's how do you from a mental point of view, how do you counteract that? Is that, that something that they train you on 
yeah because yeah well there's a lot there's a lot of support a lot of support for for officers who who are working you know in in roles because the organization understands that it becomes part of your family you know um the organization really manifests as as part of you um and then the people who you know you go through your training with become your family um I have, still have some of my closest friends to date are people who I, I went through those experiences with because it's such a period of profound learning and growth and challenge um, that that you just build relationships that, that truly last a lifetime. Um, and I guess you then, once you move into an operational role and you're working in a team day to day, then you just become very close with those people. Um, it tends to be a little bit of a close team in terms of you know you end up dating people within the organization because they understand the fact that you can't talk about your day you know um and I ended up marrying someone from within the organization so is is that why did you get out of the organization because it sounds like you loved it I know I did um yeah I I so my husband Tim um we started dating uh, right at the end of my operational post, just as he was beginning. Um, I moved back to Canberra. We went on a trip to Europe. He proposed to me under the Eiffel Tower. Oh. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then we came back and sort of said, okay, well, we've got to restructure our lives to kind of live in the same city. Um, and we tried to do that through the proper channels in the right way. And it was shut down. Um, and there are a lot of reasons why. They sort of said no, it's not going to work, um, and and that's because you know once once you put in a role within the organisation, you kind of have to stay there, and it's really important. And human resource management is very difficult, as I'm sure you could imagine in an organisation mm. like this. Um, so we just met a bit of resistance in in trying to in trying to make it work. Now, subsequently, you know, I had some discussions, and they said no, of course, please stay. There's no way we want two officers to leave. But yeah, the two of us had this sort of moment where we went actually. Do we want to stay here? Is this is this our careers? Is this where we are forever and ever? Um, yeah, and we both just had this like real kind of flash of actually no, maybe this is it. Maybe this is a real natural time for us to move on and to do something else. So we left. Wow. Yeah. Do you ever regret leaving? Every day. <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, it's not something that I could do again. Which is why I talk about it, right? Um, yeah. If I ever, and you've been, you, and I have to say that you've got permission to talk about it in yep. general terms. Yeah, I do. Yep, yep, yep. So I've spoken to the organisation, spoken to them about you know why I'm talking about working there and the kind of things that that I'm gonna gonna talk about it. And yeah, I've got their endorsement. But um, yeah, I mean, it was an amazing job. It was it was such a such an amazing time in my life. Um, and such a fulfilling role, uh, but you know, I'm a mum now. Could I work there as a mum? No way. You know, could I? Could I give my son and my family, that family unit, the extended family unit, the priority that it needs if I worked in a role like that? No, I don't think I could. Um, and that's not to say that people don't do that, um, but there, there's just no way that I could have done it. And and now that I know what I know, being sort of beyond the organisation. I couldn't do it, but yeah, man, I miss it. I miss it. Do you, can anyone join at any time? Yeah. Does this sound like a really great recruitment tool for them at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> anyone can join really? at any time. And you know what? Like when I started, it was, you know, it was what I always wanted to do. 
like I said, you know, based on my degree, but it was also, yeah. you know, 9-11 and, and all of those things played into it and really sort of cemented that for me. And working in ASIO when I was there was about terrorism. It was about, you know, the stuff that was happening um, at that time. And there was all sorts of active investigations that, you know, that, that you can that you can Google that, that you know, is, it, it's very sort of... Um, open source information available on the kind of role that ASIO played in, in bringing a lot of, uh, you know, domestic terrorists um, out and dealing with them and charging them and, 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 and dealing with, with that security environment. But when you think about the security environment now, you know, in 2020 and how it's evolved and it, it would just be such an incredibly interesting place to work now, you know, in terms of criminal behaviour online, cybercrime what espionage looks like in 2020 you know it's just it's such an evolving organization and it's such critical essential work um and they will just take anyone from any stage of their career for that reason because people who are the right fit like I said come from from so many different backgrounds for so many different reasons the things that make you you know click in terms of of individual and role are so much to do with your knowledge and your skill set and your charisma and charm and capacity to build relationships and it really doesn't matter what stage you are of your career many people they would have to take a pay cut that does pay fairly well <laughs> but but yeah it's uh, I'm a huge huge advocate of anyone who wants to work um Frazier. it's an incredible place to work so that I think is a probably a good place to sort of step on to the next section which is post ASIO, although yeah. I could talk to you all day, every day about it. <laughs> I, I could never get in. They know I want a laser watch now. Um, <laughs> um, so let's talk about sort of the next stage after. So how did you transition? You got married and then you sort of transitioned out of that yeah. world. What so then was I the had, next step like, for you? You could imagine how difficult it is, you know, when you're wrapping up uni and going, what do I want to be when I grow up? That's fundamentally more difficult when you've just spent five years being something that you can't talk about um and can't yeah explain how do you apply for jobs I worked for the government that's yeah, all I can tell you much. and you can't get a reference no well you can get a reference and you need oh. to you need to, but you but you can't say you worked for ASIO obviously so you know you kind of there's cover stories to to explain that and they're really like for me the really important point of that was I maybe I wanted to go back you know so I couldn't talk about the fact that oh, I worked at ASIO and here's my amazing skill set and you know if anyone can build relationships for your business it's me check out all this sexy stuff that I've done do you know what I mean I couldn't do that <laughs> um, so it, it was about well how do I um where do I translate that and how do I turn myself into something else and so yeah um I decided to study again so I did an MBA um mm -hmm. and then I joined Ernst & Young as they were known then now EY um, global professional services firm in their consulting team, their advisory team. So basically became a management consultant. Um, so yeah, just hit restart, reset on my career, I guess. Um, and became a, I guess, a consultant to help businesses do better. I was in Perth. We went back to Perth for a little while at that stage, Tim and I, my husband, um, and he became an investment banker and I became a management consultant. We just became sort of very <laughs> cliche versions of ourselves given where we had started. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a reset that had to happen. Um, and, yeah, but it, it was amazing how much of my skill set from ASIO I could use in my everyday 
in what I eventually started to do as a management consultant, but of course could never really explain in a lot of detail to anyone else. Obviously, you've got a very amazing skill set in regards to building relationships easily, but did you internally find it very difficult having genuine conversations with people because you had sort of peeked behind the curtain, so to speak, in regards to this other world and knew. So when they were sort of saying, oh, I think this is going on or this, you just internally get very frustrated and have to walk away from conversations. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I would. I'd yeah, be like, oh, God. A little bit. But I think it's part of my, like, natural kind of curiosity to kind of understand your motivations and what makes you feel that way and think that way. Um, and I've always been like that. So, yeah, I'm the kind of person who has really, really close relationships with people or really zero relationships at all. Like I just can't, I, I'm very bad at being an acquaintance of someone. Like if yeah. I if I know you, then I want to be in your pocket and understand everything about you um, or I just find it really awkward. You know, I find surface level kind of conversation, you know, just really. Inane. Yeah, well, I guess because I want to yeah. go deeper, you know. So I wouldn't say I walked away and kind of went, oh, you know, it's more that I would kind of push and go, what else can we know? What else can we talk about? How else can we build this relationship? Um, uh, which worked well for me, right? So I went into consulting and basically became a change manager. I didn't really know anything about business, right? I just knew that I needed to, to change my skill set dramatically. So um, working in an advisory team, I basically be- became a change manager within major transformational projects. So um, one of the very first projects I did was for BHP when they, um, BHP Billiton relocated a lot of the control centres for their mines from the Pilbara and from the mine site itself down to Perth. They built this massive t- tower and put all of their controllers in a remote operating centre basically to co-locate them and to achieve all of these efficiencies in their mine and start to introduce automation and, you know, the efficiency of having everyone co-located and communicating better. So like my job, one of my first jobs as a consultant was to roll up into the Pilbara wearing my, um, you know, high vis and boots and everything else and sit down with these guys who'd been, you know, controlling trains from the Pilbara for the past 25 years and tell them why they should relocate from this tiny dusty town to Perth CBD and why that would be a great idea. Uh, and that, like, that was really, like, just used my skill set from the job that I'd just come from to ingratiate myself and to build relationships and, and, to, and to see the world from their perspective and to create some common ground and build rapport and, yeah. Wow. So how long did you work for Ernest & Young for? Um, similar kind of time period, I guess. Okay. Um, yeah, and... I left there basically because I was traveling. I worked in the Perth office. I worked in Canberra. I worked in Melbourne. I worked in Sydney. Um, and I was just traveling every week as management consultants tend to do. Uh, and yeah, I just was sick of traveling every, every week. Um, I'd get up at 4am on a Monday, fly across the country, work Monday to Thursday in Perth, get back on a plane, fly back. And I just, you know, my parents had their own business and, and I, had always grown up with my parents being very entrepreneurial and having their own business. And, and I just looked at them and, and where they needed help and assistance and thought I, I have such just, I have an amazing skill set now that I've developed in terms of business, um, you know, performance and improvement. And I want to redirect that skill set to something that feels more real and tangible to me 
than continuing to to do the really big pro projects that I was working on. And I, you know, worked did some awesome work for Defence and um, BHP Billiton, Rio Tinto, a whole bunch of people that um, customs, border protection. But I just wanted to do something a little bit more immediate in terms of family and, and all of that kind of stuff. How old's your son now? So he's four. He's just turned four. Okay. So I went back to basically went back to work for my parents and within six months of getting there, fell pregnant. <laughs> Sorry, Mum. <laughs> Did your parents know that you were working for ASIO? Yeah, yeah, they did. Um, okay. So my parents knew, um, like my my nana knew, for example, but like at the time, aunts and uncles, anyone, like nobody else knew. Okay. All right. So you go back, work for your parents. Yeah. With Tim. Yeah. Have your baby. Yeah. And then at what stage, because I want to move on to something that's very, you're very passionate about, which is mm. a lot of your social media at the moment. Mm. When did that sort of all get turned on its head? When Josh was eight months old. Okay. So I was like, had a baby. I was bouncing back from from that. So I had Josh in July 2016. And I was like, great, I've got a baby, amazing. Um, it was the first of what Tim and I would planned would be maybe two, maybe three babies. Um, and I was just kind of losing weight. And everyone around me was like, you look amazing. Your postpartum recovery is just outstanding. You know, go you. I was like, yeah, I don't feel great. Um, so I went to see a GP a couple of times and they were like, oh, and I was working, you know, I, I don't know if you're getting this about me, but I'm very, I'm a bit of a workaholic <laughs> and I kind of put everything into, into work. And, um, you know, he was, Josh was very young, but I was working um, every week and, and yeah, I just wasn't feeling right. So uh, very tired and just eventually saw my GP and he said, okay, like, let's try to just do some investigation into what's going on here. Um, we started with a um, with a ultrasound of like my gallbladder, looking for gallstones, that sort of thing. Um, and I always will remember this technician working around my chest and moving this ultrasound wand across my body. And she got to where I now understand to be my liver, but I had no idea at the time. And she just got really quiet. And she was chit-chatty, 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 and then suddenly very quiet. And I was like, hmm. And I just walked away from that thinking, I wonder what that was about. Anyway, I got called and told that I needed to go for an MRI of my liver. Went to see a gastroenterologist with the results. And they said, yeah, you've, you've got a liver that's full of metastatic cancer. Um, we don't even know where the primary is, but this is basically stage four cancer that's just all through your liver. So this could be a breast cancer issue. This could be a, a bowel cancer issue. Um, we're going to start with a colonoscopy and, and see what we find. Uh, we did that and, yeah, I had had bowel cancer, stage four. My best mate had bowel cancer and she had a four-month-old at the time. So I get the realities of having a horrific baby and that diagnosis. Yeah. How did you react when you first had that, like that, what was your initial 
response, um, I suppose, I, I was to hearing that diagnosis. So I was very naive as to what really that meant when I first had this diagnosis. I had zero experience of cancer in my life. I was incredibly fortunate in that no one had ever really had cancer at all around me. Um, mm. So I was just like, oh, okay, cancer. Cancer is something that, okay, you have a bit of chemo and that's rough. That's what I know. But then you move through that, right? And I had an oncologist kind of sit me down and, and in a really – painful elongated way basically lead me to the path of destination of knowing well this is actually terminal and yes we'll give you some treatment but you've probably got 18 months you've maybe got up to two years um but that's where you're at um and that was just the most horrendous thing ever obviously you know it was just like mm. it, it yeah it broke me completely and my family it's just like how completely unfair for someone who's got a brand new baby and, and the promise of of this life that you know we just moved into a new house like yeah and, and and now this is what we had to do I mean I had to give up breastfeeding like I went in for my MRI and you have a contrast in your MRI so you have to stop breastfeeding while that clears but from that point they said no you're straight on to chemo you know no more breastfeeding like it was things were just being ripped away from me and it was horrific but um, yeah. really 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 sad um, but then as quickly as it went to horrific and sad, I just suddenly, it was, I don't know if I woke up one morning or it was probably more gradual that I went, no, this doesn't have to be like this. This There is, there has to be a different way of looking at this and, and I'm going to find that. I'm going to find the alternative. I'm going to get a second opinion. I'm going to, I'm going to see how else I can approach this problem. And I just thought about it as a problem that I needed to solve as I, I guess, had taught myself to think it, up until that point, you know, like this is just, this is just a problem that I've got to overcome and I've got to find a way to make that work. It's a project to be managed, I guess. So had you started chemo by the time you, when you said, I want to get a second opinion? No, I was okay. probably three or four days into my <laughs> stage four terminal diagnosis reality. Um, and it was actually my mother-in-law who suggested uh, a second opinion um, based on just sort of Tim's side of the family has had a lot more experience with cancer and unfortunately for them but very fortunately for me because it just opened up a range of contacts that we wouldn't have had otherwise and I went to see a liver surgeon who said yeah no your liver is full of disease and there's no way we would touch it but maybe there could be in future. And no one had ever said that to me up until that point. I'd seen other liver surgeons. I'd seen liver transplant surgeons. I'd seen anyone you could care to think of. I just got all of the opinions to try to understand what was going on. I just took it. I took hold of it as my problem. Um, and, and eventually that led me to an oncologist who said, yes, like the chance of this, of this being something that you can overcome is just so slim. But there is like, if you look out into this sort of dark window and the abyss of that dark window you, there's a tiny just sliver of light and 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 if you want to chase it I will chase it with you and, and, let, and let's go after it and we just made that commitment and that's what we did so he they gave you the hope yeah that one little bit of hope yeah fantastic because on your social media you seem so stoic about it and so positive about it all so I was interested in regards to the how you sort of tackled that initial yeah conversation it, regards to mindset but three days from having that initial there's a different you know devastation to there's a different way of handling it that's a pretty quick turnaround in terms of mindset but I think that was just when I found myself again and I think that that's just my mindset you know I think that 
people always say, oh, how do you become so positive about this? Like, how do you do this? And I just, like, for me, that, like, that's just who I am. Like, there is no alternative to, like, if I'm not positive about it and just getting on with it, then what am I doing? Just sitting on the couch or waiting to die? I don't know. Like, I, I just, I think I've, it was a set of complex circumstances that I just needed to work through. And when you kind of, you know, sit and think about it in the context of your life, then you can see that, you know, I've, I'd been through a whole set of different complex circumstances in my life and, um, and not the easiest of scenarios and, and could draw on those to say, okay, well, how, how do I find a path forward in this and how do I maintain me, you know, Nicole and, and how I would have approached this as a problem and, um, I understood that if you want an outcome, then you've got to lead people down that path. You know, if you want people working towards something, then you've got to manage that as a project. That doesn't just happen. I knew that, you know, that relationships are the key to everything. And so that has driven, you know, I'm best friends with my doctors. I talk to them daily, my surgeons, you know, like that they're important relationships. And, and so you know, at, at, at the end of it all, we're, we're just human, right? And, and I understand what makes us tick as human. And then that's what I went after to try to, to try to make it something different. I just tried to just find, find the angle to it that would mean that, no, I wasn't dead at, at 34. I was, I was alive or, or at least working towards being alive. What was the catalyst for you to start the social media? Because you're very transparent on your Instagram. Yeah. What what was the catalyst to say, I want to document this and be so raw? So I started writing a blog. That was where I started um, because I was looking online for stories like mine. I was looking for someone who had been given a stage four diagnosis, 18 months to live. I'm really sorry. It's very, very, very sad, isn't it? To, no, I've turned this around. I've gotten to month 20. You know, I've gotten to month 36. I've, you know, I was told that my liver was inoperable. I wanted to find someone else who had, had got from inoperable to operable. You know, I wanted to find those stories and 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 I wanted to 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 give in because people were saying to me all the time, how do you do this? I'm like, I don't know how I do, I'm just doing it. So I just thought if I just empty my brain onto a piece of paper and I knew that I could write, like I'm a I'm a qualified trained journalist, you know, I can write. And so I just thought, well. I'll just give this a go and see how it goes. And the response was just amazing. And then it became this kind of this cycle of I would put things out in writing and the response that I would get back to pe- from people was so motivating, um, strengthening. It really became like the foundation of, of me and my strength and my focus. And when I would waver and be unsure, I would write about that and put it out there and people would come back and say, yeah, but remember this and remember that and what you've been through. And it's like I just opened myself up to having a relationship, you know, with everyone out there who cared to be a part of it. Um, yeah, it was instinctual again, I guess, to share it. And I'm so glad I did. And, yeah, then I just kept going. It's interesting that you say that it's instinctual because you've been trained very well to not, not to <laughs> share all this information. Yeah. And then you've said, this is instinctual. I'm just going to put it out. And for somebody that doesn't really do associates and, you know, stuff like yeah. that, I'm all, all in or nothing in terms of friendships. I'm just going to put this out to the world. But I guess really I was trained in how to use human connection for an outcome, you know, like how to, how to build relationships and rapport 
to get somewhere and the, the power of a human relationship and what that can actually do and what can be achieved just from communicating really well. I think that's, that's what I was trained in. Mm. And so, it, and that's why I guess I say it felt instinctual to just say, look, this is all of me and this is, this is what I'm going through. Does it help you? Maybe, you know, what can you give back to me? Where does that take us? What can we learn? You know, all of that. I guess that's why I say it was instinctual because I could see that there was an outcome that I wanted somehow. I wanted a sense of closeness. I really wanted advocacy. I wanted more people to understand that bowel cancer wasn't an old man's disease. Um, There was lots of things that I wanted out of it. Um, Yeah. Do you, you said, did I hear correctly that you said that you're 36 months post that initial diagnosis? Now, do you mean? Yes. Yes, I was diagnosed, I don't know how many months it is, I was diagnosed in March 2017. Okay. Uh, So you're past three years now. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and, you know, I got all of those, all of those things that I needed to happen, I got, right? So I, you know, I've now done a total of 40 rounds of chemo and I've just kicked off. Holy moly, Nicole, 40. Yeah, 41st, I've just started. Um, I've had eight surgeries, so I got, you know, I started chemo in March and in August, sorry, not August, October of 2017, I had my liver resection where they went in and took all of the the cancer out of my liver that they could take. I just had a, an amazing response to chemotherapy that was not, that just wowed everyone, that no one saw coming, you know, that kind of slither slither of of light that opportunity that we were chasing like I got that I don't I don't know why you know I know the things that have played into it in terms of you know doing every single treatment that was allocated to me in terms of you know my outlook which I think is a, a big part of it and exercise and exercise and its its relationship with cancer treatment is something that I became incredibly passionate about and and I'm a an advocate for in in everything that I do but you know I got to have that surgery and and then I subsequently got to have another (laughs) seven surgeries beyond that we've hacked into my lungs um six times now um six six lung surgeries two liver resections and a bowel resection 40 rounds of chemo and here I am how do you keep getting up in terms of uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have another round because I mentioned earlier that my mate um had a bowel cancer. She was only stage three. They cut it out. She had one one stage um one round of chemo and she yeah. said I'll never do it again, chemo. Yeah. It was so horrific. Yeah. And you're on round forty you said forty one? Yeah. Now? Yeah. How like that's full on. How do you keep going, okay, I'm just gonna keep keep going with chemo? Because essentially it's poison they're poisoning your body and to to help you with the cancer how do you how do you keep persevering with that so I think that um you know making making my cancer journey something that I've shared openly and making the fight something that you know I really rely on other people to 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 motivate me and to get me back in there and now I feel like I'm letting the team down so to speak if I don't go um and that's you know that's me and Tim and Josh, my son, but that's my extended family and that's my friends and my medical team, you know, like I've 
I feel like we're all accountable as a group and and then by extension all of the people who I have a relationship with on social media and I know this sounds crazy I've never met these people there's people all over the world who follow me and speak to me every day um but but they've got time for me and I feel like I've got you know a human accountability point to them this is you know we're doing this this is we're just going to keep on pushing and I'm not saying it's not difficult um there is you know like I I've done some incredibly incredibly tough IV chemo and and chemo changes in intensity you know you go up and down you do different treatments you don't do 41 you know rounds of the same therapy um so I've had much easier stuff and then I've had absolutely horrific stuff you know I had to be admitted into hospital then stay overnight for a couple of nights for every single round because it made me so sick I couldn't eat anything I couldn't you know it was it was bad I've had a a whirlwind but yeah I just that's I see that as that's my job now I've just got to keep pushing and and there are some days where that's all very broken and I'm, I'm not I'm not able you know I'm not able to pull myself together but I haven't missed one yet you know I've, I get there eventually how much does Josh know about what's going on he kind of knows everything we haven't used the word cancer per se um because that's something that he wouldn't understand but I would suggest we're weeks away from sharing that because he's obsessed with the human body. I think because he understands so much of what I've gone through, he understands medicine, you know, like I've got a port in my chest, which is like a little um, implant, obviously, for those who don't know, you kind of stick a needle straight into it and you can kind of pump drugs straight into your, straight into your chest and straight into your heart. So he's seen me walking around with this stuff, with this medicine. He's visited me in hospital. He's seen the many scars that are all over my abdomen chest um so he's very aware that that I was sick and 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 I get better and that's a an ongoing constant struggle and that's something that's you know really important for me that I live authentically with him because I am sick and there's nothing to be ashamed of in that and and that's that's a real thing you know and it will affect him and hopefully you know he said to me this morning mama will you live to be 100 and I said yeah I will, mate. I definitely will. But if I don't, then I want to have had a conversation with him from the beginning. I don't want him to think back and go, oh, my God, this was the day I learned that my mum was actually sick. You know, I just there's nothing wrong or secret about being sick. Sick is is that's that's a real human condition. And I just want to live that authentically with him. And I think it's sounds like it's easier from a gradual dawning rather than a shock. I think well. so. Kids know. Kids know yeah. what's going on around yeah. them and stuff. But. And you don't like you just never know as a parent what you're meant to do, right? No one, no one writes a, a good book anyway. <laughs> how to be a parent and all the rules, um, and how you live a, like a terminal cancer diagnosis. Like, but he's lived it with us. You know, we found out when I was eight months, when he was eight months old. So, so yeah, I just he's only ever known life that way. Hmm. If you sort of had one thing that that you could give people in terms of the out there that haven't had that experience or potentially people that have just had that diagnosis, do you think that there's anything that you would recommend for them to do? And I say this because I felt that when my mate was going through her diagnosis, I actually sat down with her and I recorded a podcast. We she doesn't like public speaking and we got so drunk it was not usable. Um, <laughs> but she, I didn't realise how down she was yeah. and how much she wasn't asking for help because she was trying to be stoic. And, yeah. uh, I mean, it probably didn't help that we were also 
inebriated while recording, but we were just at one point we were both in tears and it yeah. was just, and then also it was, I, she, she said, I probably needed to laugh a lot more and, and not be so serious about everything as well. Do you think that there's an element of that throughout every journey that you can say, yeah, I think that that's a common, a common trend. Yeah. But, you know, like I, I think that, I, you know, I came from a, from a place, like I said, with zero knowledge of cancer and what that meant. I didn't understand what a health trauma was. You know, I hadn't been through anything like that. And I, like, so I I was born um, with single-sided deafness, so I'm completely deaf in my right ear. Um, and I was born with that, grew up with that, never really understood the impact of that. But when I would speak to people, through my career, like I always managed it. I really never told anyone that I was deaf. I had plenty of people probably stand on my right side and go, hey, Nick, how are you going? And I would totally ignore them and they would think, she's a bitch, whatever. <laughs> what a cow. <laughs> but I just dealt with that, right? And and so I kind of saw, I don't know, like when, when cancer happened, I just saw that as just, it was just another facet of my life to be lived and I just needed to work it out. Um, and... Uh, and it was something that I did just just deal with in a in a very public way and just in a really real way. You know, like I've just really got this this mantra of of just being human. You know, just being authentic with it and just and and, and there's certainly a tendency in me to protect the people around me because you feel such a burden. You know, like you're the problem. You're always the problem. And it's particularly for some for someone going through what I'm going through, where you know, like I've been cancer free, quote unquote. I think four or five times. And then we find something else, you know. I've had a, a complete pathological response on paper, which means that, like, the treatment has worked, you know. Like, we did a lung operation. We took out a bit of lung. We tested it. Cancer-free. Oh, my God. That's, a, like, I've announced this to everyone. It's, like, we've bought bottles of, you know, Dom and, and, and you know, stayed up all night drinking champagne and, and about this amazing achievement only to find out that they'd taken out a piece of lung that was perfectly good and actually missed the tumour and I still had cancer. <gasps> So, no. Oh yes. So, but that's just life, right? Like this stuff just happens. And if I'm lucky enough to still be going beyond the 18 month mark, well then I've got to find the small wins in that. I've got to find the celebrations in that. You know, people have all sorts of health issues, mental health issues, physical health issues. You know, um, people have their trauma. Everyone has their their room that they can fill up with stuff you know, and, and yeah, I've got a big room, but that room is relative to me. Um, and other people have, have other rooms that are of, of various sizes and, and shapes that they fill up with their own stuff. And, and I just think the more that you're real about it, the more that you share it, the more that you be honest about it, the better the outcome for everyone. But, but the other really specific thing that I would say with regards to cancer treatment, and, and if for someone who was or is diagnosed with something that, to the, to the same extent that I was diagnosed with, or even not, you know, you're in a stage one cancer. I would say that that your cancer is your problem. It's your body and you've got to own it and you've got to coordinate it and you've got to manage it. And doctors are just people who've gone to medical school for, for a long time. They're not gods. Some of them are heroes. Some of them aren't. Some of them are great at their jobs. Some of them are terrible. Um, some of them take out healthy lungs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was an off day for that surgeon. But, you know, like, but he, like, my my thoracic surgeon, right, the guy who did that did that operation, he was in there doing that operation because he believed that we could 
we could push me to the end of this, you know, like he went, so not, it's not any old surgeon who's prepared to operate on a stage four cancer patient, right? Because chances are all of this is going downhill at some point, right? So if, if you've got a surgeon who's come to the table and is prepared to operate, it's because they're prepared to push for a cure. And if so, if someone's that invested in you, you've got to, you've got to grow that relationship. You've got to build that and, and, and pull everything out of it that, that you can, you know, and make it yours. But, but I would just say to anyone that, you know, that's, it's your, it's your, the cancer is your problem. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like embrace it and grab it and, and solve it, you know, project manage that problem. And, and if you don't like your doctor, find a new one, you know, if your surgeon's giving you the shits, then, then, you know, do a casting call for, for a new guy and sit down with, with the next guy or girl who, who could potentially operate on you and um, and just advocating for, for patients to take their diagnosis into their own hands is, is something, particularly during a pandemic globally, is something that I just, mm. it, it's so important. Um, yeah, that would be, that would be my big push, I guess. Where are you at now? What's, how long's this chemo round? So we're doing um, six months of chemo now, and it's a it's, mm-hmm. it's a pill based chemo we're doing now, which is so far so good um, in terms of impacts and and you know side effects and all of those sorts of things. Um, so the point of this is in in cancer treatment terms is almost like a mop up, you know, like can we go through my body and just search for all the microscopic disease that might be there because on scan at the moment I'm cancer free. But as I've said before, that's I've been in that position quite a few times. So we're just always trying to push the envelope and trying to see, okay, well, how long can we go without treatment? And I've just had quite a big treatment break because I've had two surgeries. So we're in July now. In April, I had a lobectomy. So the whole lower left lobe um, of my lung was taken out. And then in May, I had a liver resection as well. So we've just taken out two big chunks of me <laughs> and my cancer. And so this chemo effort now is is really geared towards, okay, well, let's do a mop-up, get to the end of six months, and then press pause on treatments again, and then just surveil and see how far we go. And then if we find something else, then we treat again. So the, I just want to clarify stuff because I'm not in the world of stages and yep. stuff. So you've you mentioned that the guy who took out the wrong bit of um lung mm. in terms of operating on a stage four patient. Yeah. And I don't want to um dehumanize you by referring to you as a patient, but essentially from his point of view it was. Yeah. And then but you've also then stated that you can't free and this is a mop up. So where are you at now in terms of diagnosis? So once you're stage four, you're always stage four because the implication of stage four is that the disease is spread through your body. So so the disease will travel through your body via your lymph nodes and, and that system or maybe through your blood and that system. But, but you can imagine that once it starts to make its way to organs, then these are teeny tiny cells that are kind of always there. Um, and so it's exceedingly rare to be able to get to stage four and have metastatic disease to the extent that I did right so I had when we found my cancer it was in my bowel where it started it was in my liver where it was taking over and I was quite close to having my liver just fail and shut down completely and it was in my lungs and so 
we've treated with chemo very aggressively to start off with, had an amazing response in my liver. The majority of that disease turned off. We cut out the bit that didn't turn off at the time back in um, 2018. And then we said, okay, well, now we watch the liver and we wait. And then we keep treating with chemo and we keep treating and we keep treating. We try to kill as much as we can. And then we go, okay, we can break for more surgery. Let's go after the lung lesions. Let's try to get as much as that cancer out. Because obviously the more that you cut it out, the better. I mean, chemo is great, but there's no absolute. If you can cut out cancer, then it's gone, right? When you're killing with chemo, you just don't know. You're hoping to get every last cell, but you never know if you've actually got it. So we treat a bit with chemo. We cut some out. Then we've had some that's grown back in my lungs, right? So we've had stuff that's come back that, of course, has always been there when we actually go back to the original scan. It was a teeny tiny lesion that we never actually picked up originally. So you're just trying to stay ahead of the disease all the time. The most recent liver surgery I had was all of the disease that had turned off or effectively died in my liver had, had remained that way except for one that had turned back on. And we went, okay, we'll go back and we'll take that out. So, so basically just cherry picking the things that we cut out of me um, and we keep pushing that envelope until we can stop and wait and see that, okay, well, now we've got a six-month break where nothing's happened or now we've got a 12-month break because nothing's happened. And, and if you get to five years and nothing happens, then on paper you're cured. But the chance of that happening for a stage four cancer patient is so exceedingly rare. And so I try not to think about that um, I just try to think about how do I keep going for as long as possible with no disease? And then, you know, in parallel, you've got advances in, in targeted treatments. We've got, you know, immunotherapy. We've got a whole raft of new and different ways that we can treat. And so we've still got plenty of cards to play up our sleeve. And the longer I'm around, the more cards will arrive. Um, but, but that's just, that's my life now. I, I'm a stage four cancer patient. I will be for my life. Um, because there is always a risk of a recurrence because the likelihood of removing every cancer cell from your body is just very tough. Well, Nicole, I find you and your outlook completely inspirational. I think you're absolutely amazing. Thank you, Fiona. Um, I'm totally going to be following you now um, <laughs> on Instagram. I've, I've already connected with you on Instagram as well. So I'll be following the journey and everybody else can. Do you want to share your Instagram? Yeah. Is it a handle? I'm new to Instagram, so yeah. I still don't know what's happening. Yeah. So <laughs> it's Nicole Coopy. Um, so it's just, I've just ditched the ER off Cooper and replaced it with a Y. Um, so yeah, Nicole Coopy is my um is my Insta name and then my, um, that, you know, links to my blog and that sort of thing. I haven't been blogging for a really long time, actually. I just was saying yesterday I need to get back to storytelling about my cancer because I've had people contact me and say that they've read their blog and it's they've read my blog and it's really informed, you know, the decisions that they've made and, and all sorts of stuff. So I need to do better. I think you're doing fine, Nicole. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put any more pressure on yourself. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really My do pleasure. appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Thank you.